0: I was a coach for decades, and I often leaned on the quotes from the great UCLA basketball coach John Wooden to inspire my teams, and sometimes to console my teams during difficult times. Renowned medical expert and author Dr. Burt Mandelbaum, who counts John Wooden as one of his mentors while he was serving his fellowship at UCLA, wrote in his 2014 book, The Win Within, that, quote, "...adversity is the engine of unimagined possibilities." I'm a Venice, California-born, Los Angeles-based sports fan, one that has played, coached, announced, and promoted sports my whole life. My love affair with sports started in my own backyard and has led me to this podcast. Thanks to the support of the Amateur Athletic Union in East Bay, I'm excited to bring you Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. These are tough times, sports historians, and we certainly are facing adversity. The thought and words of those we admire can indeed give us strength. Dr. Burt Mandelbaum is one of those people. We at Sports Stories were fortunate enough to have interviewed the medical advisor to the USOC, FIFA, and multiple sports groups on March 18, just days before the series of stay at home orders, which affect nearly one out of every three Americans. Our conversation, which started on the coronavirus and its impact on sports in Part 1 and 2, remains timely in the sports world as we hear this week that the 2020 Tokyo Olympics will be postponed, most likely to 2021. Before I go on, I want to welcome today's producer of SSDL, the OG producer, from the first few episodes when I didn't even introduce a producer. Christine Jimbo in the house, Jimbo.
1: (laughs) Ain't nothing but a cheat thing, baby.
0: And in the house is super appropriate because she's my wife and we live in the same house, so social distancing is highly appropriate these days. The rules do not apply when you're in the
1: same pod. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thanks for having me back. This is uh, Sports Stories with Denny Lennon, and I'd like to tell all of you that missed part one. You can go to the website and check that out, sportsstoriespodcast.com. And if you want to visit social media sites, though, you can also find those on sportstoriespodcast.com as well. Mm-hmm. And because um, I'm being welcomed back, I get to make a big announcement. And yep. the announcement is, drumroll please, Facebook Live will be returning this Friday.
0: After a one-week postponement.
1: There you go. Yep. That's it.
0: We're postponed on Facebook Live for a week like the Olympics it might be for almost a year. We'll see Ooh. what happens there um hey everybody my twitter handle is at sports stories dl there's been a lot of chatter uh on on twitter about the olympics i want to uh mention david wharton over at the la times he's been on top of the story and so i've been retweeting a lot of his stories um i'm also going to be writing blogs not only about the olympics uh but about the upcoming vote for the aau sullivan awards of which i'm a committee member and uh, some other blogs as well so Make sure you look us up on our website and follow us on our social media sites. All right, well, part two of this highly relevant three-part series with Burt Mandelbaum, MD, is coming up. Hopefully you listened or watched the last episode when I had Burt give his positions at each of the sports he's associated with. It's highly impressive. In this episode, we continue our discussion about the Olympics, and then we move into Burt's life as a young man and the journey he took to the positions he holds today. As I mentioned, along the way, he formed a relationship with the great teacher, John Wooden, who Burt met just after Coach Wooden faced the biggest challenge of his life. Uh, In the following clip, later in Wooden's life, the great coach, teacher, and mentor, a man who grew up in Indiana during the Great Depression, is asked about his biggest challenge.
2: Looking back over your life, what's
1: the greatest challenge you've ever faced? Losing my Nelly. That's the greatest challenge, when I didn't care much to whether I carried on or not at that particular time, but with my great-grandchildren coming along, at that time she didn't live to see any of my 13, our 13, and uh, I think then getting myself and the feet on the ground and, uh, and carrying on, and uh, um, I think that is, of course, a challenge in, in, uh, of getting yourself under control. That was the biggest thing I've had.
0: Considering that part one of this interview was the most viewed, listened to, and downloaded episode we've ever had on the show, I think it's time for me to throw it to part two with Bert. So from the Cedar sinai Medical Building in Santa Monica, California, here's part two of my three-part interview with Dr. Bert Mandelbaum. Please note this interview was recorded March 18, 2020.
3: We have to have perspective and to know that tonight will exist for all of us, 99.9% of us, that there's going to be enough food and water right. and that we're going to be around our family as best we can today. And, and we'll look at tomorrow with more of a critical eye. So perspective, the third P is really key. I
0: thought the third P was going to be pizza.
3: It could be pizza tonight. I think that's what we're doing is uh, we're ordering takeout all the time because it's important. That's another very interesting issue is the supply chain for the markets is very different than for the restaurants. The restaurants have plenty of food because their supply chain is different than Mm -hmm. the markets. So uh, you can get from Instacart and all these online places as well as get from our local restaurants because they have plenty of food.
0: One of the uh, perspectives that many of us have is is popular culture, whether that's television or, or film. Uh, film that's like uptick lately is Contagion, which was about nine, ten years ago, and dealt with It's similar. There's a lot of similarities. The way we view WHO or the CDC or those groups and how they interact, do you think they're accurate, accurately portrayed for the most part? Like, do we have a perspective on how... Those groups work, or I'm I'm just curious what it's like to be closer to how they solve these unbelievably complex problems.
3: Well, I think that the World Health Organization, by the way, it it lives in Geneva. Mm -hmm. Um, There are people there who I call, and and the people who work at the Centers for Disease Control, which is in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. and the World Health Organization are probably the most idealistic people in healthcare. Okay. They were, they were most of them were motivated when they're a high school student by the stories of previous epidemics of understanding the relationships to bacteria and virus and fungi to disease. Okay. So people like Louis Pasteur, who were the icons of infectious disease and understanding these issues, had had more to do with how American and all other medicine has been affected. Mm-hmm. When you look at the major iconic changes in medicine in the late 1800s. To think about the sterile Robert Joseph Lister from Glasgow giving us a sterile operating room, <laughs> uh, Fleming giving us the discovery of of antibiotics in the 30s. That these are the major changes, and you have people that work in these organizations that were inspired, inspired by them, and their aspirations were to be part of organizations like that. So when you see and you work with these folks, you realize they're extremely passionate Mm -hmm. and extremely professional about understanding what the context is of these epidemics, of these pandemics, Mm -hmm. how they think in terms of the public health issues, how they think in terms of understanding how to solve the problems, vaccines, Mm -hmm. um, and all of those that are extremely important in understanding disease. Now that said, you have that segment, you have those recommendations, but what percentage of our public truly gets a flu vaccine? And we have 30 yeah. million people in America getting the flu every year. Mm-hmm. So what what percentage of the public really gets them? It's, it's really in, in the lower <laughs> numbers. It's not not at 90%. Jeez. So that's what I say. This is a, an ever evolving field, but we have these professionals running these organizations yeah. And they do their best. They're built for dealing with crisis.
0: The one of the um, I don't know if it's a misperception or just a perception that the heat or the, you know the warming of the climate <clears throat> would help suppress uh, a virus. But then I've also heard that we don't know because we've never seen this before, and it could very easily adapt to a warmer climate. Is that a thing?
3: Um. It it could be. You know, when you first look at this, and you look at two hundred countries that are represented on the Worldometer website, mm-hmm. y- you see at the top there's China and Italy, Spain, you know, upper latitudes countries, mm-hmm. um, and you wonder, uh, although we don't know statistics to actually correlate or conclude that in fact there's a direct association between latitude and disease exposure and deaths, et cetera. Um, you raise those questions and I think over time we'll learn that hmm. and we'll see those statistics okay. at this time. I don't think people could make those conclusions. And you know, when you look at the list, you find St. Lucia and the Grenadines and, yeah. and Bolivia down at the bottom. And you wonder, because they're in full summer, uh, that probably has something to do with it, but I, I'm not so sure.
0: What do you think they're, parameters will be upon return Um, I mean I know I'm asking you to speculate on a lot of things that we don't know but would there be some some kind of protocol that all of your athletes have to be um, tested free of the virus for a certain amount of time what if somebody did carry the virus how how long is is that period it seems really complex and 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 difficult to get to the point where NBA is good to go MLS good to go, let alone the Olympics. It seems like there'd be a lot of hurdles.
3: There are. Um, again, one of my other phone calls I made before I jumped back into the room was another team physician who contracted the virus. Mm. He's at home. He's fine. Uh, he's not very sick. In fact, he just told me he got back from a run. Hmm. Um, he snuck out for a run, okay. uh, but he continues to be quarantined. Uh, he's in day eight of his quarantine. He's got six more days. But one of the theories are that if he has the disease, he carries the antibodies and that he may be the one who is, is not able to carry or infect anybody else despite the fact that he ran the course of the disease. Okay. Now, that's theoretical mm-hmm. uh, because we don't know. We talked a few minutes ago about these mutations. Mm -hmm. and do do our antibodies account for all those mutations? I don't know, and I don't know that anybody truly has those answers at this time. Mm. If we believed that, in fact, those of us who've got the disease, survived the disease, came out the other side, then we should be taking their blood and using the antibodies in some way of isolating those antibodies and giving them back to people. (laughs) Um, In Italy, they're raising questions of how to do that. And I think a lot of the scientists are figuring that out right as we
0: speak. And then at some point, you know, your person's identity, civil rights, and those things are gonna come into play. So that's gonna be, you know, that's gonna be some kind of difficulty, but obviously it's a bigger problem for all of us. I was wondering, do you think the location of the Olympic games would have anything to do with the decision to to return or to have the, have the Olympics move forward? A location in the world? If it was in... I mean, that's a pretty stable government and economy there. So it seems like if there were any kind of outbreak that got away, that would be one place that would do well. But then people are going to say it's in Asia. So is that an issue? Um, if it was in a wealthier country versus a you know country that isn't, do you think that's going to have anything to do with I, I, it?
3: I don't think there's any bearing... Uh, with respect to the questions you ask. And the reason why I say that is it's a place to hold, it's a venue that's going to hold the Olympics. What's the bigger concern? The 211 countries or more that are represented by those delegations, by these people all congregating. And imagine if those Olympic Games were in three or four weeks And we had Italy represented and and Korea, South Korea. And they bring their microbes to the Olympics. Mm -hmm. It would create a devastating Mm -hmm. epidemic in and of itself. And that's one of the interesting things about the recent Chinese study that just came out. Interestingly enough, when this all started in Wuhan, it was during the Lunar New Year, the Chinese New Year. And what happens, the first part of the study was to actually look at the travel behaviors that the Chinese had done in the previous years to get an understanding of the numerator and the denominator to understand how they change travel and how they affect the disease. So the first thing they did was shut down the travel. And and that was the first treatment. No traveling within within China or coming from without. Okay. It was it was president trump who subsequently listened to what the chinese were saying so oh, we're not going to fly there now well the answer was they shut it down first yeah <clears throat> not only the people coming into china but the people traveling within china
0: did do you you trust the information that came out of china initially do you is there something to the idea that they weren't releasing accurate numbers
3: i i don't know um on face value, yes, I have to fit, have to trust those mm-hmm. numbers to some degree um, i've been with the Ministers of health of china and and i'd like to believe that the purpose of the Minister of health is to to keep the people healthy. Uh, that said, in my question as we had dinner in the people 's Hall of China <laughs> at that time was really focused on, and this was in two thousand was focused on why is it that we see everybody focused on Eastern medicine in China, yet all the leaders have Western medicine clinics. Okay. And he answered very honestly, and he said, well, we have a lot of people here. We have 1.5 billion people, and we, don't, we didn't have the money with Mao mm-hmm. after the late 40s. So we had to keep people happy, and we had to do what was not only politically correct, but was feasible under those circumstances when you're managing 1.5 million people. Yeah. So they talked about herbs and massages and, and things like that, part of Eastern medicine. And when it came to leaders, they understand their functionality of Western medicine. So that said, I think the, the sense of realities, and I spent a month in Beijing for the Olympics there in 2008, the realities are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But on face value, we have to trust what we what we get at this point.
0: Is there an advantage, I would imagine, I don't know, is there an advantage to having a more authoritative system of government and an ability to control the populace? Because when you look at, like, what's... <clears throat> I think there's a lot of trust that has to happen here, whether it's San Francisco or whatever city, that they'll self-quarantine, they'll stay within a, a certain area. There's just, we, you know, there's just not the ability to enact... I mean, to enforce all of these...
3: You know I think it's uh we have our one of our greatest natural resources in this country is our mind mm-hmm. and we have tremendously smart academic people, scientific people and clinicians and we have great organizations from the f d a uh from the n i h from human health services so you've got this tremendous focal number of yeah. people who are experts in this area, the CDC as well. And I were the president, I would convene those people, mm-hmm. and every day in the lower corner of, of the computer would be a news conference at 8 a.m. and a map. Here we are, this is what we're doing in San Francisco, this is what we're doing okay. in Michigan, this is what we're doing in Florida. This is what you don't need to do. Is You have to stay home, you need to be quarantined. We've got more testing, there'll be four hundred more tests in Michigan and two hundred more in Amarillo, Texas. And give people a sense that there is someone at the wheel of the seven forty seven.
0: There's a structure in place, there's we're gonna get <clears throat> similar we're gonna get information each day. Has to do with X, right. Y, and Z.
3: And that speaks to the third P that we talked about, giving people perspective. Mm-hmm. Helping people not panic. I get calls every day from people I know. I've my chest hurts, or this is going on. Do I have COVID nineteen? <laughs> and it's first about perspective. No, mm-hmm. you don't. It's okay. We're going to be okay here. Or if you are sick, this is what
0: you need to do. This is what you need to do. You know, um, all generations have been faced with their challenges. Some lesser than others. Talk about the greatest generation. Um, all the way moving forward is this is, it's this seems to be the challenge I mean that's certainly my kids your kids age this is their this is their big challenge what can you maybe roadmap it to the end just for having a good positive vision of how this might play itself out for the best for the best in this situation
3: well I think that we play this thing out and we learn about how the game changes here. We're in the end of the first quarter right now. Okay. So the game's going to change, and it's going to change in intensity and detail however it shifts, up and down. We're going to be well-positioned in terms of a game plan as we have now shut down everything we're doing, basically. Mm-hmm. We're isolating ourselves, and we're flattening that curve. Mm-hmm. Better than testing. Our big problem as we head into the second half, the third quarter, that we really have is the economics of it all. Yeah. As we go into April, uh, I think that people are working just at the edge of their ability to pay their mortgage, their rent. Uh, I think that fortunately the government is kicking in mm-hmm. some type of aid. Um, We like the Yang approach where we give everybody Mm -hmm. $1,000. It's going to take the edge off. It's going to be good for everybody. And then we can take a deep breath. As we go into the fourth quarter here, then it's going to be the reality of how do we get back to the new new. And I think what I forecast, society is going to look much different by the end of the fourth quarter. We're going to spend our lives differently. We're not going to get on cruise ships for the next few years. Okay. We're gonna fly 50 or 80% less than we did before. Those of us who travel around the world like this, like a shuttle between here and London, we're not gonna have that as much as we did before. We're gonna conduct meetings on Webex and Zoom and GoToMeeting. We're gonna think about how we do things better in our local environments. We're going to have to figure out how to pay for the deficits that we're going to be faced with. <laughs> and I think we're going to be much more serious of how to respond to those next challenges, which are going to be what we can do, what we should do, and most importantly, how we deal with the economics and the realities around that going forward as we get into the last minutes of the game here. Yeah.
1: Honey, um, you think it might be time for a commercial? Vamanos a Casablanca. Vámonos a Casablanca.
0: Casablanca Restaurant in Venice. Proud sponsor of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. So, Christine, do you know uh, much about Casablanca?
1: The movie or the restaurant? Oh,
0: nice. Uh, how about the movie?
1: You mean the 1943 Best Picture? Yes. Yeah. by Warner Brothers? <laughs>
0: yeah, that's the one. All right. uh, do you know who played Elsa?
1: Elsa was played by Ingrid Bergman, I believe. What?
0: Who played Rick? The Bogue, Bogue, Humphrey Bogart. Wow, this is amazing. Do you know much about, uh, well, do you know where the city's located?
1: Well, I think it's like a port city in North Africa, Morocco. Morocco, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: This is something different. Uh, Yeah, and how about um, the restaurant? Do you know where the restaurant's located?
1: Oh, the restaurant's one of my favorites. It's right there on Lincoln at Rose.
0: Well, um, it is. So you answered all of the questions correct, as opposed (laughs) to the last time we did this commercial with the other producer. However, uh, I want to say this. While we're closed during these uh, coronavirus times at Casablanca, they will be delivering um, packages, or you can pick up packages um, of food and it's it's in effect the same that we got catered at our Super Bowl party, which was legend,
1: legendary Super Bowl party. And for all a, those who missed it.
0: It was something else. Like there's a taco bar with three different meats. They got enchiladas. They got their world famous um, tortillas. And uh, Carlos told me this: if you uh, are to mention sports stories with Denny Lennon, if you call him and mention sports stories with Denny Lennon, he'll throw in either a discount or margaritas. His number is three ten. Five zero five, five zero nine one. That's three ten five zero five five zero nine one. You ask Carlos for the package deal and tell him you want the SSDL discount and/or margaritas. Casablanca restaurant and sports stories. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship.
1: Vamos a Casablanca, la comida para la familia. A a and now back to our Sports Stories interview with Dr. Bert Mandelbaum.
0: I like how you broke it down into quarters like that. It actually makes it a little more, for those of us who are sports-minded, makes it more thinkable. Makes well, more...
3: everybody, the human mind thinks in steps. Mm-hmm. When challenged with, When challenged with things that seem insurmountable, It was Winston Churchill that gave us the concept of Believernomics, we called it Mm -hmm. at that time. Believernomics, they were being bombed every night. And he had to face the population, the British population, and inspire them to have perspective and how to understand it. Break it down, let's get through tonight, and we'll deal with tomorrow, tomorrow. And Believernomics is the optimism that even in the most dire of circumstances, we must all have perspective there's going to be opportunities for success there's going to be challenges there's going to be that adversity but if we do the right things we work as a team remember the team is together everyone achieves more yeah and if we do that as a society we're going to find things that we thought were scarce such as money and other things or resources it will become more abundant and i think that's the undiscovered here that's the unimagined opportunities that's our ray of hope going forward
0: okay i got hope
3: that's good i always have hope keep it up
0: you know one of the um things uh that you when you were you were talking about um considering it within quarters and stuff uh i interviewed craig Impleman, and he's coach wooden's grandson-in-law Sure. Coach underneath sure. stuff. So he, he, he brought over and he started to talk about that 68 team that had lost in the Astrodome game mm-hmm. and that was with Lou Alcindor and, and that team and so um, it was the only time <clears throat> in the semifinals when they met him in the semifinals because that was regular season, they met him in the semifinals and it was the only time Coach Wooden changed his game plan. Instead of that 2-2-1 press, he went to like a diamond in one kind of configuration and they blew out these guys that had beat them easily. And I thought, wow, even coach adjusted at some point. And that's what's required of us now is to to look at this and adjust.
3: And adjust and adjust. And, and there's one story to end these stories that really, really focuses the efforts that we need to make. It was 2010, mm-hmm. and we were playing the World Cup in South Africa. Mm. We're playing Algeria. We We played, and we're in a situation where if we lose or tie, we go home. 90 minutes into the game, the score is 0-0 against Algeria. The ball is kicked. Tim Howard makes the save. We're now in the 91st minute. Tim Howard looks around, and he sees one player that he's looking for, Landon Donovan. He finds him, and the ball gets distributed to Landon Donovan. Landon Donovan, at that one moment, has two players on his back heels. And Landon Donovan, in his trademark moment, takes the ball and kicks it out in front. And he knows that in the 90th minute, he's just one step faster than these other two. And he runs away from those two other players, comes down the field. He crosses the ball, and Clint Dempsey is there. A shot is taken, and the shot is saved. But the ball presents itself as Landon continues his run down to the six yard, and the ball is right in front of him where he kicks the ball and puts it back of the net. It's that 91st optimism mm-hmm. that won the game, that not only did we win the game, but we won the group. In that one moment, that 91st minute, he was able to go from we lost, we're bottom, to the top of the group. I call that 91st minute optimism. I had
0: that kind of optimism when I brought both of my kids in various times to you. at their point where they were less than optimistic because that knee isn't working and what they know isn't what they know anymore and just your way of making them feel comfortable letting them know they're in good hands like this is we're going to everything's going to move forward from here and i would do the same i kind of took that from you to whatever athletes that i was in charge of got hurt i'd say okay moving forward now everything's going to get better not, every day, it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be challenges, but it's going to get better. And I got that um, kind of optimism from you. Born, um, bird in uh, Long Island or New yes. York? In the, New York, in, yes. In the city? Or in
3: the... Uh, I brought up, uh, born in New York City and brought up on Long Island, yes.
0: And so, um, parents' uh, jobs, what did they do?
3: My dad uh, was a pharmacist. Uh-huh. He's still living at 95, and my mom... Wow. A nurse still living at 93 Wow, wow. they're one of the few that's people fortunate. in their 71st year of marriage holy moly how many of those do you know Not many. that's Not first many. I think <laughs> that's right any siblings older brother uh-huh black sheep of the family he's an attorney okay uh, a younger <laughs> sister in the entertainment industry
0: okay so you were um, you're sharing a great story when you're young earlier before we started the interview and I'd love for you to share that again about um, seeing seeing your sports hero Mickey Mantle. Um, so, would you have been at the time living in Long Island, and then you said something about your dad would take you on on a particular night? But would that be that drive to the Bronx?
3: Yes, wow. exactly. Or, you know, or did
0: you, or did you jump on the subway? You know, that's it always interests me. I, I, I just those are initial sports stories when you see your first stadium or you see your first ballpark. There's something about it.
3: You know, as we were talking about. Denny I I was a kid who was a number seven as I said it started as an athlete continues Mm -hmm. to be an athlete and I was that number seven kid you know I love Mickey Mantle those that were 24 who were the Willie Mays kids but I was the number seven it was the number I wore in everything I do and my dad would take me to baseball games I was nine years old and at the time Mickey Mantle was playing right field and he was obviously an iconic uh, player, but he had an amazing impact on me. And we would have tickets just behind the home team's dugout. But I would walk all by myself, and I loved going on a Wednesday night because those evenings in April were cool and somewhat misty. People would, wouldn't come out to the games, and the Yankees at that time weren't doing very well. Mm-hmm. And I would sit there with my chin perched on the fence, And I would stare at Mickey every move he would make. Every time he would move to the left, run to the right, he'd call. And I would do the same things. And I remember those moves time after time. And in one moment, Mel Stottlemyre was pitching. And he was being hit pretty hard, I remember that. And they were down 4-0 at the moment. And they decided to make a change. And uh, Casey Stengel comes out and <laughs> change Mel Stoudelmeier. And and mm. Mickey Mantle walks over to me with my chin on the fence, of so the right After field the right fence. Field. And he brushes against me and his big forearm with that red hair, large forearms with actually tar and smelling, I could smell the nicotine from his chewing tobacco, Man. and the moisture in his wool uniform rubbing against my arm. Today, I remember it like it was yesterday. And that one moment, that Mickey moment, inspired me so much. As I said, it started with sports, it continues to be sports. There could be some concepts, some techniques, some technology in between, but it's always about sports. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky that when I worked for Bud Selig, and people referred to me as the soccer doc, but I talked about this, and next thing you know, I was given the the jersey, the original jersey of Mickey Mantle, and it hangs in our offices here.
0: Love it. Um, So you're you're young, growing up on Long Island, and is that where you got your um, affection and love of the sea?
3: Yes, it was. Uh, I grew up as a lifeguard. I spent six summers as an ocean lifeguard, and for me, I learned how to dive and scuba dive and fish and and uh, learn the love of the sea and and maintain that as my hobby today.
0: And one of those hobbies includes uh, in, includes swimming with the sharks.
3: I do, I do. <laughs> so I, you... I have this. I've always had since my teenage years a fascination with sharks. And in the last 20 years, I spent a lot of time in cages, out of cages, with large sharks, small sharks videoing and photographing sharks
0: when is the right time to come out of the cage how do you know
3: this you just (laughs) well it's like everything else you have to know the behaviors of of these sharks okay you have to know what they do when they have predatory reflexes Mm -hmm. um we know that these sharks when we dive at guadalupe island off of mexico some 250 miles from ensenada we know that these white sharks that average between 12 and 18 feet Mm. Uh, that they always hunt from below. And if we stay above the cage, if we're in or out, they don't really see us or understand that we're nothing more than the cage. Okay. And so we could come <laughs> out of the cage because they, wow. don't, they don't come down and hunt. They go, always go up to hunt.
0: Wow. Um, Peter Benchley, he wrote the book Jaws in 74, but he <clears throat> I think the idea came from in Long Island uh, like 10 years previous to that, like 64-something, a massive great white was was, was caught, right? Like 4,500-pound great well, white or something. St- Do you know that story? Yeah,
3: the story was, in fact, this was part of my fascination as a teenager. I read all those stories, mm. and it actually was in New Jersey um, okay. that the shark had gone up the river and attacked oh, young wow. boys, and and that was part of the stories oh, upon wow. which Jaws was written. And Peter Bensley. I see. Yeah. So, uh, probably... it, it was it was going up the river, um, and that's what it really. So you, so the you story. read these stories
0: about the boys getting. Yes. Bitten, and then yeah. you end up. I I, on. I was
3: a weird kid that I would have books <laughs> on all the shark attacks in the world. But love it. Uh, all the shark species. I had this weird hobby. My mother always complained. I would not want to read any other books other than books <laughs> about sharks, or fish, or any of the like.
0: What uh, was your first entry into, um, like, playing on a team in in athletics?
3: What was my first injury? Entry. Oh, entry. Yeah. Um, You know, I played uh, when I was uh, younger. I played baseball in in, in my teen years, and that was Mm. a big sport. And then being from Long Island, I I really began to play lacrosse Lacrosse. and football, which were my primary sports.
0: Um, Who um – I always ask this question to my guests because I'm always interested. Was there somebody who kind of identified you, that saw some promise in you, uh, was a good mentor when you are a youngster?
3: I, I've been blessed. I, I've had some amazing mentors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, in fact, uh, mentors really underscore my life mm. all the way through. Uh, when I was young, I had some hard but great coaches that taught me about uh, no sniffling. That there's no <laughs> easy part of life, and we got a lot of kicks in the butt, and mm-hmm. it was a a tough love, I would <laughs> yeah. say. Right. Um, they had those coaches. <laughs> their names were McNamara and Goldmere, <laughs> Um but they kicked our butt, and they got the most out of us. But it really taught me the empowerment themes. Mm. One of my biggest mentors that I really identify that an impact in my lives is was JFK, mm. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and That famous speech although I don't really remember it as a young child Mm -hmm. it's not what your country can do for you it's what you can do for your country those empowerment themes were things that myself and people around me were brought up with yeah and I carried that to work ethic through school and in college and and after college and then you ask about mentors I, I had a great mentor at Johns Hopkins by the name of Bob Scott. Okay. And Bob Scott, who was- uh, Athletic director there? He became the athletic director after being a great coach who was also a philosopher hmm. and really was extremely inspirational for me uh, and a big mentor. Uh, for me in in medicine, there have been many, but my other major mentor when I came and did my fellowship at UCLA-
0: Which I find fascinating that I had a yeah. magical
3: moment uh, the very first day uh, as a sports medicine fellow. I walked to poly Pavilion. I walked down the steps, and just to my right standing there is Coach Wooden. And Coach Wooden looked. This is mid-'80s. This is 1985. Okay. He hasn't been coaching for seven 10 years. years or something, yeah. For seven years. He finished coaching in 78. And Coach looked at me, and I looked at him, and the first thing he did to me was, Give me the finger. Come on over, son. He says, sit down. Because on the court, the basketball team was practicing at that moment. The coach was Walt Hazard. Uh-huh. And Walt Hazard had a distinctive way of coaching. He would sit in about the 10th row of the bleachers with his arms at his side <laughs> and a cigarette in his mouth. <laughs> and the first thing Coach Wooden <laughs> said to me was, as I introduced myself, I know who you are and i said coach um i'm the fellow he's i know who you are but he says the first thing i want to ask you is what is that guy doing over there <laughs> and i looked at him and i looked back and i i i, I said to myself well, here i am i have my first trick question and i said coach he's coaching god it's not coaching you can't coach from the 12th row with a cigarette in your mouth and that started a I relationship Coach would had. had his
0: own problems when he was coaching Walt Hazard, and now he's going, what the heck, buddy? You're the same guy. I was trying to work on this with you. That can't be <laughs> coaching. You can't
3: <laughs> coach from the 10th row uh, with a cigarette <laughs> in your mouth. And, and that started a long-term relationship. And um, through my fellowship, through my years working at UCLA, uh, I had this relationship with Coach. And every year I would meet with him until the year he passed away where I'd bring residents and fellows to remind them of how impactful this icon was to sport.
0: Um, It's something I always use in coaching. And uh, I never really had the chance uh, to meet him until later in life, but he was always so much a part of my life through his books, through just growing up and being enamored with that team, watching it on KTLA that I got to grow up with. You know, your Mickey Mantle was... Interestingly enough, like my John Wooden, because I was always fascinated that same coach was there every year and they won the championship every year. He was great. Now, speaking of winning championships, I got to back up for just a second. One second before we
3: get off of Coach Wooden, I have to tell you my very last moment with Coach. Uh, We had dinner out in the valley. Uh, We would pick him up, bring him in. He was in a wheelchair at the time. Mm. And about that time, he wrote a book. Uh, It was called For Children. It's called Inches and Miles. And I'm sure you've seen it. And maybe Sienna has mm-hmm, read, it. read it. to them. But for me, one of the most moving moments of my life was listening to Coach Wooden in a wheelchair with a basketball on his lap and with a book in front of him would read poetry to the group we assembled there in this restaurant wow. with my residents, with our fellows, with other doctors, reading the poetry mm-hmm. from Inches and Miles. Wow. And so that, that image, that moment... Was just such an inspirational moment for me he
0: never stopped giving
3: never stopped giving right up until the the last
0: second he was trying to get better too right
3: and he was a poet and people say you know dr. Burt you're a philosopher and I said I know nothing but because that's what I've been taught the lessons that we've been imbued upon uh, are come with the philosophy of life and as I said the intersection of the sport, the sport
0: of life and the, and the life, life of sport. Life of sport. Um, you know, I'd heard that. Uh, I think I listened to you on a different podcast or something. But then as I started to study, I started to it. I started to lay out in front of me. Um, so when you went to uh, Cortland, um, you played lacrosse there. Yes. And, um, and it seemed to me that that was a really important part of your life, that being athletic and, you know, putting in the work, that that started... It must have started much previous to that, but is that where it started to crystallize? Yeah, I, I think as it.
3: you know, it was an interesting time um, for all of us. Uh, for me, it was you know learning how to be an athlete, mm-hmm. uh, learning out how to be somewhat of an academic. Uh, I much more I, I had I had been more on the athletic side than the academic side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cortland wasn't the 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 best of academic institutions at the time, but we had some amazing professors mm. and uh, you know the forte there was about physical education, and we made the best of it on the biological side of it. we I learned I took marine biology and field biology, and those lessons um, very few people got. Uh, with my plant collections and the insect collections, so <laughs> it had a, it was a very formative time for me in understanding the biology of the world and how it related to sport.
0: The Red Dragons.
3: The Red Dragons.
0: The Red Dragons. They won. Um, they won a title in like the mid seventies around did, that time. Nineteen seventy five. Were you over at the school then? Were you? Yeah, a, you were on I that team. There. Yeah. Okay. See, now it gets interesting. Do, do you feel that being on a team that's standing there with the championship? after your final game, has some kind of long-term play in the end. I mean, Coach Wooden didn't win at that championship for like 16 years, and then he won 10 out of 12. But he'll tell you he was, a, he was always in pursuit of something more, that it just wasn't just winning the championship. And it's all these things. And when I hear you talk, it sounds a lot like it. It's, it's not as if you don't have championships, but you certainly understand that road.
3: Well, we understand the road, and we also understand when you don't have championships. You know, if you look outside here, we've had Galaxy Championships where I'm the chief medical officer in 2011, 12, and 14. Uh-huh. Uh, we haven't even smelled a championship since. And I always say in life, appreciate the <laughs> championship. Appreciate the highlight, whether it be whatever that is that you were, you had you were the star on that team, or whether you get that part in that play, or you mm-hmm. got that job that you wanted. What is your championship? And highlight that in your life and celebrate yeah. that moment because not every day in this life that we call human life is about championships. But when it happens, you must celebrate it, enjoy it, <laughs> nice. and take the lessons and, and enjoy it to the best possibility you can.
0: From uh, Cortland, you go over to John Hopkins, and then is that where you start, you, you get involved in coaching? Correct. And they won a championship in like 78. Yes. When Were you part of that coaching staff?
3: I was part of that coaching staff. Look out. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so it, was those, a, it was. it yeah. was an interesting time um you know and and working with bob scott and henry Ciccaroni at the time uh being part of those staffs in 76 and 77 now 78 i already gone to medical school okay so i was part of the coaching staff but the particular year that i was there we we did not i wasn't Mm. part of the
0: of that staff yeah of i was part of the staff but you saw the but i had left yes you saw the process john hopkins um Obviously, he has this great academic reputation, but they're, they're a power in, uh, in lacrosse, right? Yeah. and They have a long history of that.
3: Yeah, and for me, that was another crossroad because I had come into coaching. the My job was to coach the B team, mm. um, but I did, it didn't start out that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the coaches that I was supposed to be the TA for, that's how it first started. His name was Willie Scroggs. Who one day came to me and he says, "Bert, the good news is the good news is I'm going to be the next coach of University of North
0: Carolina.
3: The bad news is you're going to be the next coach <laughs> of our B team okay, so you've got to try that on for size. I remember that day very That's well not a lot of people get jobs. yeah, and, and my first basically my first four months after graduating college, I'm a head coach of a B team of one of the major lacrosse yeah. traditions yeah you are in America. And so we had two winning years, and the second winning year uh, was the winningest year in Hopkins B-team history, and I was being recruited Mm. to be coaches of other institutions, and specifically Princeton University. Wow.
0: So this is a crossroads.
3: Yeah, it was a crossroads. And for me, one of those amazing moments sitting with Coach Scott in his office, as he sat back with his pencil and he says, Let me see. Med school coaching med school coaching, med school coaching, and he said, Okay, I got it. I'll tell you this, I'll make a deal with you. You go to med school, you don't like it, you come back right here, and I'll get you a job as a coach i wow, promise that's fair
0: that's 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 a mentor
3: and that was that was <laughs> the most amazing moment. What I learned from that moment was that's a mentor how a mentor could sit back, how he could listen, process speak at the right times, understand the needs of the mentee, and deliver.
0: He's working in your best interest. Yes. right, Right? Instead of his. His is to try to convince you to stay on as his coach.
3: And those are the essence principles of being a leader that I've Mm -hmm. learned. And that's what we promulgate with The Win Within, how Mm -hmm. to teach people how to understand how to be a leader about what self-assessment is and understanding self-control. And the ability to know how to see yourself through other people, and how you can embellish their lives.
0: Um, so you you hopped over to Washington University, yes. In in you had already uh, so the, so so you're getting close to closing out your medical training. Another mentor, o- over at Washington.
3: Uh, a mentor before at Washington, but at Johns Hopkins I worked with a, a tremendous mentor. and I like to tell the story about the mentors mm-hmm. because so many of our listeners are looking for those people. You're mm-hmm. at those junctions in life where you need those people who have the wisdom and capability of influencing your life. Sure. That's part of the reality. That's the contract of being a mentor. And Dan Nathans at the time, he was a, a physician, also a Nobel laureate wow. a, in genetics. Jeez. And oh, wow. the other thing I learned that in life you want to be associated with major icons and just live in the in the (laughs) splash of them (laughs) he wrote me a letter and uh, instead and i love to tell this story that it all looks good but my first application to medical school i was rejected by seven medical schools my second application i was accepted by all seven medical schools and a lot of it had to do i think with Having the right mentors mm. to give you the right ability to project yourself, to guide you in the right things, and and that letter from Doctor Nathan's, the Nobel laureate, uh, really provided me that path. Hence, the, my my really appreciation of mentors. The
0: um. <clears throat> then, then I think you went back to John Hopkins before UCLA, right? <clears throat> you said five
3: years of residency at Hopkins.
0: You said something about Hopkins, like it was like training to be a Navy SEAL or something along these lines, yes. that, they really, that they really you felt like once you came out of that, you're ready for any challenge.
3: Well, Johns Hopkins had, uh, in the medical arena, there was lacrosse and then there was the medical <laughs> arena, and uh, it was really the foundation for American surgery, uh, the history, the tradition. So much of the techniques came out of Halstead and Osler and the big four at Johns Hopkins. And, and, but part of that was this tradition of training you like a naval seal that, that really eating was a weakness, sleeping was a weakness, (laughs) was really the, the themes that, that were promulgated amongst the residents. And I learned that there were 168 hours of the week. And all of them were game to work. <laughs>
0: <That> was, <clears throat> when I saw when I saw that I thought there's some good training there, and now I can start to understand how he can hold all those positions. I still don't fully understand how you manage all of that, <clears throat> but I could see some of that training was taking place at John Hopkins and then um, at UCLA. And I, you know, was just intrigued by your relationship with Coach Wooden, um, and I kind of remembered that from when we first started talking at Archer. One of the things that was interesting was, I think you said um, that you didn't get the football or the basketball job, so the soccer job became yours. Had you had much experience with soccer prior to being the team? None, in fact, I hated
3: soccer. Okay, (laughs) I hated soccer. (laughs) You know, it was, uh, you know, you're the young guy and uh, the older (laughs) guys would take care of basketball and football with the big traditions you take care of soccer okay (laughs) and i found the soccer guys much like the lacrosse guys that i i knew and had experience with and it was easy for me to interrelate and it just turns out that coach ziggy schmidt who since passed away last year let him rest in peace uh, a good friend of mine and who i attribute to my soccer career in in soccer medicine uh, really took me under his wing and Taught me the game and and I learned the medicine and it just turned out I came to UCLA in July and in December we won the national championship in wow. soccer.
0: Wow, that was the same was eighty five or whatever, not that the same year they won the Rose Bowl too.
3: It was the same I think. year. So like with the it, Eric Ball, t- it was the Eric Ball team. Yeah. We? it was actually wow. n- 1986. Which what about 86 is, Rose Bowl, it but was 85 season. Rose Bowl, yes. so you were there that year. Yes, that
0: was a high point for UCLA.
3: That was a high point for UCLA. They haven't seen success like that since. No. Um, that's why I say you have to appreciate championships. You know, to win the soccer NCAA cha- championship, to win the Rose Bowl with Eric Ball hitting yeah. 220 yards. Yeah gaston green that was all part that's of that right, green. yeah that was all part of that team wow
0: the the campus must have been alive
3: oh the campus was alive and and back then it was the gutty bruins you know we were smaller and smarter than the
0: gutty little bruins that's what that was like coach's original team 64 or whatever that's right coach donahue was yeah, there Madonna and the, was. A,
3: another great mentor uh of uh, mine
0: uh, wh- tell me about coach donahue a little bit i think um he might be the winningest Pac-12 coach ever. I think he kind of gets lost in the shuffle sometime because UCLA, you know, has a shadow of USC's football program over them. But Donahue was a tremendous amount of consistent success.
3: Incredibly intense leader, mm. um, but an incredible methodology and intensity of the principles of leadership. Mm. I really learned a lot from him, uh, and I loved his intensity. Uh, he was so focused, and uh, I, I was mesmerized with his ability to be so focused as he was. Yeah,
0: he, he, he was something. Um, around uh, this time, you joined the Santa Monica Orthopedic Group? Yes. Um, is this around the time you're, um, or had you been married prior to this?
3: Got married in 1988. Okay, so a lot, lot lot's going on at this time. Yes, yes. Found my wife, Ruth. Uh, we married in October of '88. Uh, also a doctor, and uh,
0: went on to have three kids. Had, was she a doctor prior uh, to, or was it while you guys were both, she was already a doctor by the time you met her? Well, the story be
3: told, and here it <laughs> is, here it was. I was a young faculty, and this is what perhaps Grey's Anatomy was built upon. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, and she was the medical student, so it was a different time in the 80s. Sure. Uh, We didn't have some of the principles and the rules and the credos were different. Um, They had a rule that you couldn't, as a faculty, you couldn't date medical students. But, in fact, you could marry them. So, in Uh. fact, no one knew that we were dating until we got engaged. Uh. And so everybody first knew about it was once we were engaged. Okay. All right. Well, you know.
0: Hey, men used to run naked in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So, we we all we all make our
3: and three kids and thirty one years later we're still
1: functioning. Okay, and that was part two of our interview with Doctor. Bert Mandelbaum.
0: Such a fascinating and thoughtful and inspirational guy. Um, we'll get to dive in in part three a little bit more with the evolution of his book, um, "The Win Within." I am Channeling. so
1: interested in listening to part three. Part one and part two, it's just it's fascinating to hear him speak. I love I love to listen to, to what Dr. Bert Mandelbaum has to say. Yeah,
0: he really is something. Um, we also uh, are fortunate that he uh, took us in and, and spent a long, a long time with us, and it's very relevant uh, material for these times right now.
1: Yeah, sports Center ESPN just did a, a topic of the same piece, Coronavirus and yep. Sports. It's the exact same title.
0: Yep, we're right on point. Um, we've got Facebook Live coming up.
1: Uh, you promised um, Coach Mike Boley from Loyola High School. Is that still happening?
0: Yeah. So, um, obviously, last week we put it off for a week. We just wanted everybody to take a breath um, while, while everything was going Makes down. Sense. And so, you know, as long as technically we can figure out a way that he can, uh, you know, appear on Facebook Live, that's the gig. Uh, and it's going to be interesting because he's, you know, such a successful coach for a long time. But more importantly, he's got a team. That's just chomping at the bit to play. They want to go win that section title. And and you know, it's just it's it's interesting to see here hear how he might be interacting with his players and how he's managing their expectations in these completely uncertain times.
1: We both know so many coaches and it looks different for every program out there, what they're doing with their teams mm-hmm. to keep them involved and keep them connected. And I'm really interested to what into what uh coach's gotta say about his team. All right, Facebook Live tomorrow, next Thursday, Part 3 with Burt Mandelbaum.
0: Now it's time for an installment of As Time Goes By, where we get to know Carlos Haro, Jr. of Casablanca Restaurant in Venice, one minute at a time. Now let's play it again with Carlos, Jr. Carlos, tell me about your wife and two daughters. Where did you uh, meet your wife? Tell me about your first date, and then tell me a little bit about your two girls.
2: Okay, my wife, I met her at uh, my... My Uncle Gibbert's house, she's Ooh. an attorney. She came over, and I saw this. And I said, this person's never going to pay attention to me. So I kind of just do it, and I saw her, and I tried grabbing her number, and she ended up having a blocked number. But I didn't know that. I thought all numbers, all cell phone numbers were unblocked. So I said, just call me. I'll have your number. The next day, I was going to call her, and I realized I don't have her number. <laughs> so it took me about two weeks to find her number, and then randomly I called her office and said, hi, do you remember me? And she's like, what took you so long? <laughs> But uh, nice. she is uh, probably a wonderful uh, woman. and uh, probably oh, the What one was your first it. date? Uh, first date, I'm trying to remember. Oh, first date, I went. I actually, she lived in Santa Maria. I drove all the way there because I didn't care. And um, I was starving, and I thought I was going to eat a big meal. And she ordered three appetizers. And I literally remember after the date going to McDonald's <laughs> and eating because I was still so hungry. <laughs> but I said I had the best time. And to this day, I still remember that. It's like, oh, my God, I was ready to eat. And you're like, I've ordered for us. And I'm like, this is it. And I'm like, oh, okay. And. That nice. was it. Tell me about your two girls. Uh, my oldest daughter is Belen, and uh, she is probably the one I, I hang out with the most. And she's—I always pick up uh, ideas from her, and she always keeps me current on everything. And my oldest one is exactly like myself, mm. so it's uh, sometimes hard because we're always arguing about the same thing. But she has the same sense of humor, and she's always the—she w- could always make me laugh. She's the one that I always like—if <laughs> you need a good laugh, she's always there. Nice. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon
0: is supported by the AAU. Find a local event and join at aausports.org. And remember, you can catch your favorite amateur sports live stream, replays, and highlights at ballertv.com. Sports Stories, along with East Bay, supports the Heroes Movement, a nonprofit that bridges the gap from mental or physical therapy to getting strong again through strength and conditioning workouts. This free service is available for any veteran of the United States Armed Forces. Visit HeroesMovementUSA.org for more information. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is a production of Sports Stories, Inc. and is available on Apple Podcasts and YouTube or wherever you listen and watch. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. You can find all our social media links, archives, and other info on our website at SportsStoriesPodcast.com. Special thanks to the John R. Wooden Course and Wooden's Wisdom. Original music for Sports Stories is courtesy of Lennon Music Productions. Original images by Sienna Lennon Photography. Sports Stories is produced by Marley Rice, edited by Bob McCall, and researched by Teresa Dolan. Additional staff include Christine Jimbo, Jake Downey, Ray Castro, and Buck Magic Lennon.
1: Hey, people, it's Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. A new episode every Thursday. Get there as fast as you can, even if you have to grab your breakfast to go.
3: Check it out, book.